Hello and welcome to another episode of My Favorite Trees. My name is Thomas and I love trees. In the very early days of this podcast, three years ago now, I made an episode all about the Christmas tree. It was, of course, all about where the tradition of bringing a tree inside your home for this particular holiday comes from, but also about the science behind evergreen trees in general and why we see them used to celebrate all manner of celebrations around the winter solstice. In the first draft of that holiday special, I had intended my focus tree to be the fir, as that is such a popular choice to have as a Christmas tree and my personal favorite. But I opted instead to speak more generally about the many evergreen conifers you are likely to see fill this role. For this holiday season, though, I'm finally giving the fir tree the spotlight it deserves. Why are fir trees such a popular choice for a Christmas tree? How else are they valued outside this time of year? And why do Russians choose to put their fir trees up at New Year's? Firs belong to a group of evergreen conifers within the pine family. Because of that, people often just call them pines. I'll still try and correct this taxonomic misstep. Not to be a jerk, I just think it's important to share knowledge, but it's also one I'm very forgiving of. The way we've named and labeled things has changed multiple times over the last few thousand years. In fact, Evergreen conifers were once broadly referred to as firs, regardless of species, in the same way that many folks call them all pines today. It's curious how those roles came to switch. Firs belong to their own group within the family. According to the evolutionary structure, they are most closely related to true cedars. I have to specify true cedars, because as we learned in my last episode about the arborvitae, there are a lot of trees in a different family altogether referred to as cedars, like the northern white cedar, incense cedar, and western and eastern red cedars. Trees like the cedar of Lebanon and the atlas cedar of North Africa are the pine family members that we see in this corner of the plant kingdom beside the firs. Another confusing name point. Douglas firs, the giants of the American West, are not true firs. They are in their own genus and are categorically different. So, what makes our true firs distinct? Let's start with the needles. These small leaves grow from their twig individually, as opposed to pines that form together in bundles. And if you look real close, you'll notice that the base of the needles look like they're smushed right into the twig like putty. This detail is in opposition to spruces, who also have individual needles, but protrude from little woody pegs. And rather than being truly needle-shaped, they are flattened. It's a shape that reminds me of a sword blade. But the leaves are never very long, only about as long as a finger joint for most species. Admittedly, this needle description is quite similar to the Douglas fir. These physical commonalities are why one tree was named after the other. But let's now look at the cones and start to see what really makes true firs their own beast. Fir cones are iconic for defying gravity. They sit upright on their branches rather than hanging from the limbs like just about every other conifer. 
They're still fairly cone-shaped, though perhaps a bit more ovoid, like an egg. When the cones mature and are ready to release seeds, they turn brown like other cones. But the young, still-developing cones can be a couple different colors, some bright green and others purple. These cones are tough to notice in the wild. They often grow in the upper branches of the fir tree. And rather than just falling to the ground and littering a trail like pine and spruce cones, they will actually disintegrate while still attached to the tree. Individual scales will be shed one by one or a few at a time until all that is left is the twiggy core of the structure. You may see those on the ground more often, and it really just looks like some voracious squirrel got to it first. But in reality, the cone did that to itself. The general upward growth of the fir cone is actually what contributes to this group's scientific name, Abies, Latin for rising up. The Abies genus is home to between 50 and 60 fir species spread across the northern hemisphere, from Canada and Alaska down to Central America, Siberia to the Himalayas in Asia, all of Europe, and even in the mountains of North Africa. Despite their wide range, they are not widespread, limiting their growth to places of high elevation or northern latitudes. They simply like it cold. The Abies genus is diverse, and taxonomists have further split the group into 10 sections to more thoroughly categorize them. Most of these splits are based on geography, the wide spaces that separate some species from others, but also around all the little differences I mentioned earlier in the needles and cones. There's a good deal of variability between species in regards to needle length and color and cone size and color. There's also a good deal of variability in regards to how tall these fir trees can get. Firs in general tend to be rather tall trees. Several species regularly reach heights over 100 feet or 30 meters. This is also dependent on what conditions they grow in. At extremely high elevations and the farthest northern extent of their ranges, firs are limited by the available resources and end up being much shorter or take on twisted shapes from the persistent high winds or heavy snowfall. Scientists call this the Krumholtz effect. But the tallest of the firs is a species called the noble fir, Abies procera, which can reach a whopping height of over 270 feet or 82 meters. The tallest noble fir grows in Washington State, near Mount St. Helens. Another iconic feature of the fir, which is often overlooked in trees in general, is the bark. The trunks of fir trees are covered in these small bumps called resin blisters. I'm going to tell you right off the bat, there are multiple things you're going to hate me for in my description of this characteristic. First off, these bumps can be popped causing fir pitch to squirt or leak out of the tree. I know what many of you are thinking, and the answer is yes. It's very much like popping a pimple. Except it's not gross because it's not on your face, it's on a tree, and the resin smells very foresty. Except it is kind of gross because the resin is very sticky and hard to get off, so I prefer to pop them with a twig rather than with my finger. All the satisfaction of popping, with none of the shame. But friends, it gets worse. The characteristic of popping these resin blisters on the trunks of firs has led one species in this group, the Fraser fir, to earn a particular nickname in its home region of the Appalachian Mountains. Folks up there have taken to calling the Fraser fir 
the she-balsam, because popping those resin blisters is seen as milking the tree. What's more is that our she-balsam has a mate. The native red spruce tree is locally known as the he-balsam. It's a spruce and not a fir, so it doesn't have those resin blisters, so it can't be milked. That apparently makes it a boy tree. All I'll say is that I think there's something funny going on up in them there hills. On a less unhinged note, fir resin has a number of interesting and not cursed uses. Its stickiness has traditionally made for a good adhesive and has even been used as an alternative to glass in the same way that epoxy resin is used today. Most recently, research has been done to determine the viability of fir resin as a biodegradable dielectric. Dielectrics are materials that act as electricity insulators, keeping an electric charge where you want it in electronics. Rubber and plastic wiring covers are pretty common examples of dielectric applications, but considering how widespread these materials are in our modern society, it has led to a significant amount of plastic waste. Some researchers believe using an organic material, like fur resin, could help reduce this waste in the future. That's all stuff I usually leave for the second half of the episode, but I thought y'all deserved a treat after I exposed you to tree pimple popping and milking the she-balsam. And these are only a couple examples of the human connection to these trees, not to mention everything to do with Christmas and other winter holidays. There are around a dozen fur species native to North America, each one valued by the indigenous peoples who have lived here for thousands of years. The primary use of the various fur species is medicinal. The resin can be used as an antiseptic to seal injuries, to cover bug bites, or to help with chapped lips. Other parts of the tree, like the leaves or the inner bark, could be used to treat headaches or rheumatism or used as a laxative. Just a lot of different stuff. Here, fir wood has historically seen limited use as a construction material, as the softness of the wood makes it inferior to other nearby species. The wood of fir species in other parts of the world, however, has seen specific uses. Theophrastus, the Greek father of botany, claimed that fir wood was ideal for shipbuilding, specifically warships. Because of this, the Latin term abes, rising up, became a double entendre in antiquity to mean both fur and warship as both were tall and straight. This connection can be seen in Virgil's The Aeneid, the Roman interpretation of the Trojan War. In describing the wooden construction of the famous hollowed-out Trojan horse, the ribs are described of being made of sawed-off beams of fir wood. The original Latin text uses the term abite, which translates to fir. I've seen some argue, though, that this may also indicate that they used repurposed wood from their ships, as the loss of soldiers in battle would suggest that an army doesn't need the same amount of ships to go home as they did to go into battle. 
but other parts of the horse are later described as being made of pine wood as opposed to fur, with the Latin term specifically being pinea. So it's up in the air whether this ship wood theory is correct, or if people back then swapped the tree names just as often as they do today. Aside from that small piece of history, there isn't much historic or modern use of fir wood for construction. More often than not, it's just pulped into paper or used to make plywood. Not only is it soft, but it's also not very resistant to insects and rot. The lack of insect resistance is due to a type of chemical compound found in furs called terpenes. Terpenes serve a variety of functions in plants. They affect things like growth regulation and reproduction timing, and in some cases, they can even be toxic to and repel fungi and insects. But in some cases, as with the fur, terpenes can actually act as an attractor to wood-eating insects. Fir wood can be used, but you would want to use older wood where the terpene content is lower or thermally treat the wood to break down those compounds. Or you could just use a different species of wood. But while the high concentration of terpenes limits the use of fur in this regard, it actually strengthens its popularity in other ways. Terpenes are characteristically fragrant, and the higher the terpene content, the smellier the tree is. This is the reason why fir trees are so fragrant, and ultimately a major contributor to why firs have become so intrinsically tied to the winter season. Not only do the evergreen needles symbolize life during a period of prolonged darkness, but the strong scent helps to inspire comfort brought on by the idea of an idyllic forest. Oftentimes, fir terpenes are distilled straight into candle wax and air fresheners. I sometimes wonder how candle companies make smells. This is one way that it's done. But that smell is definitely a big reason why firs are so popular to have as Christmas trees. I already covered the history of the Christmas tree tradition in its own episode, but here's a little recap. The first instance of an evergreen tree being brought indoors as part of a winter holiday celebration is thought to have occurred in southwest Germany in the early 1400s. There's no way to be certain what exact species of tree was used, but silver firs are native to that area, so it's definitely a strong possible contender. It could have also been a spruce, but considering how pokey spruce needles are and how much less fragrant they are, I'm somewhat doubtful it would have been chosen. The Christmas tree tradition largely remained just a German thing for a few centuries, and any adoption of the practice in other countries and by other cultures was due to German influence and immigration. It was in this way that the Christmas tree was introduced to Russia in 1817 by Alexandra Fyodorovna, the Prussian wife of Tsar Nicholas I. She was technically not the first person to do so in the Russian Empire. Peter the Great tried to do it a century earlier, but his efforts never caught on. Again, this evergreen introduction wasn't explicitly stated to be a fir, but I've looked at some old paintings of Christmas in Russia from that time period, and those indoor trees look like firs to me. Regardless, firs have been considered the primary species used for the yolka, or holiday tree, since then. But for around a hundred years, the yolka tradition was limited to the Russian aristocracy. 
everything to do with the Russian aristocracy changed in 1918 with the Russian Revolution, the introduction of communism, and the rise of the Soviet Union. One of the many changes to take place there over the first few decades was the elimination of religious practices and religious holidays in favor of secular uniformity. Christmas trees were not only tied to a religious holiday, but they were seen as a symbol of the bourgeoisie. The yolka, be it fir or any other evergreen, was banned. The yolka did not stay away for long, though. In 1935, the USSR was convinced to bring back the tradition of setting up trees and decorating them with pretty lights in the winter, but now as a part of the secular celebration of the New Year's holiday. Each tree was topped with a red star, and an emphasis was placed on the idea that this celebration was to be enjoyed by all, not just the religious elite, as it had been for the century prior. And though the Soviet Union is no more, the tradition of decorating a fir tree in your home remains a part of the New Year's holiday in Russia, rather than of Christmas to this day. One interesting thing I read comes back to the yolka tree tradition being for everyone, including Russian Jews. So Russian Jews that have since immigrated to the United States have found their traditions challenged, since the holiday tree concept is specifically tied with the Christian holiday of Christmas in this country. How then is someone supposed to reconcile this cultural practice in such a new setting? The U.S. has a similar means of being introduced to the Christmas tree, though we got it from German immigrants as opposed to German royalty. In that way, we actually had an opposite experience compared to Russia, where instead of the practice being a sign of wealth, the tradition was limited to the immigrant lower class for some time before being acknowledged by well-to-do Yanks. One of the first examples we see of the tradition being incorporated at a higher level was with President Benjamin Harrison setting up a Christmas tree in the White House in 1889. I checked, and neither he nor his wife seemed to come from German ancestry. They must have just thought the idea was neat. While Harrison was the first to implement the practice, it didn't become an American tradition in the White House until the Eisenhower administration all the way in the 1950s. But since then, it has become a tradition to have a Christmas tree set up in the Blue Room every year, except for 1962 and 1969. On one occasion, they tried a different room to see how it would go, and they didn't like it. And on the other, they needed to move it because the Blue Room was seeing some renovations at the time. Since 1961, a variety of tree species have been used as the Blue Room Christmas tree, but out of 62 trees... 54 have been furs. Actually, make that 55 out of 63, as the 2023 Blue Room Tree is a Fraser fir from North Carolina. Another Christmas tree tradition started at the White House was the establishment of a national Christmas tree outside the White House, which started in 1923. For around 50 years, we would cut down an evergreen every year from various regions of the U.S. and have it set up for the duration of the holiday season. But ever since 1974, we've been making use of living trees and fully transplanting them to the White House grounds. This tradition of a living national Christmas tree started with a Colorado blue spruce, admittedly a very attractive tree. But in 2021, we planted what is now our current national Christmas tree, a white fir from the state of Pennsylvania. 
I've not been coy about my opinion on the matter. I believe live or cut firs make for the best Christmas trees. They're an all-around heavy hitter from bough strength to needle density, and we simply cannot forget that iconic Christmas tree smell that no other species does quite like a fir. But there is one reason why I wouldn't choose a fir for this tradition, and that is regionality. I would prefer, more than anything else, to use a native species of evergreen for Christmas, so if I am ever living somewhere too far from the native range of any fir species, I'm more likely to go for an evergreen that is actually from that region. And regionality may be something you'll want to look into for the time being. Many people noticed that the price of cut Christmas trees was outrageously high this year compared to recent history. Christmas tree farms very often get their live fir trees from Canada. And Canada saw its worst fire season in 2023 by a significant margin. The forests that previously supplied our homes with a fragrant holiday icon have been decimated, and the supply has subsequently plummeted. It's hard to know at this time how long it will take for these forests to recover, and unless you live near firs like in the Appalachians or the Upper Midwest or the Pacific Northwest, it may be more financially efficient to go for a different evergreen more representative of your region. This may seem devastating for fur lovers like me, but at the end of the day, the Christmas tree is all about connection. It is a tangible representation of tradition and faith held so strongly at this time of year. It is something naturally occurring that helps remind us that life goes on even when the world is upsettingly dark. And it's a great way to feel like you're out in the woods when it is simply too gosh dang cold to actually be out in the woods. If you've got a tree up in your house right now, help it last until New Year's and consider the history of Yolka and how this tradition means surprisingly many things to people all around the world. As 2023 comes to an end, so too does my charity drive for the fourth quarter of this year. At the beginning of January, 20% of my earnings from Patreon will be donated to the Eden Reforestation Project. This group doesn't just help plant trees in deforested regions of third world countries, they also employ the local communities to educate them on forest management and to stimulate their economy with jobs. There's still time to help us contribute to this fantastic organization and to help us decide on who will be helping out next. To be a part of the fun, head on over to patreon.com slash myfavoritetrees and consider subscribing at the Treehugger tier. I'll be seeing you next in the new year, 2024. We'll be kicking things off on January 9th with a forester spotlight that focuses on an individual lauded for starting a trend of global forest conservation. Where did all those reforestation organizations like Eden get their start? Enjoy the rest of the holiday season and come back in two weeks to learn about Richard St. Barb Baker, an Englishman who saw what landscape destruction in Canada and Africa could do to our world's climate and launched an international campaign to reforest the most endangered corners of our world. I want to thank all of you for listening to this podcast. If you enjoyed it, please consider leaving a rating on Apple Podcasts or Spotify to help us grow. The music is by Academy Garden. You can find more of their awesome stuff at academygarden.bandcamp.com. 
My cover art is by at Boomerang Brit on Instagram. My script editor and social media manager is my wonderful fiance, Lori Hilburn. Find me on Twitter and Facebook at My Favorite Trees or on Instagram at Tree Podcast. You can support me directly by joining my Patreon at patreon.com slash myfavoritetrees or donate directly to a sustainable organization like the ones found on my website, mftpodcast.com. Now, go find a tree that you love and give it a hug. Mm-hmm.